Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've finally got a new show for you. We had two weeks in a row with uh, wonderful interviews, two-part interview with Adam Levin. Those are, that was really interesting. Definitely go back and check that out if you missed it. But uh, we've uh, we've gone a little while without some news, and there's plenty to catch up on. So uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Windows 10 dropping their password change policy. Um, we're going to talk about uh, some P2P, which is peer-to-peer uh, vulnerabilities that it is affecting potentially millions of Internet of Things devices. I'm going to give you an update on that story I talked about a couple weeks ago about the Amazon uh, supposedly spying on people through their Echo devices. Um, I'm going to talk about ping tracking, which I've also mentioned uh, recently that I wanted to get into. I'm going to talk a little bit technical, but I think it's important to understand the links that these uh, websites are going to to track us. And finally, we have yet more Facebook fiascos to talk about. And uh, man, I cannot believe they have not suffered more because of these things. But um, anyway, we're going to talk about that last. And of course, that will lead to our tip of the week. All right, first up, uh, I actually I've used Windows you know many times, and obviously I've run through it several times with in the book. You know, walking through all the various scenarios and capturing all the screenshots and steps uh, to show people how to do the things I want them to do to improve their security and privacy. Uh, but I don't generally use it on a daily basis, so um, I don't know if this is actually a enterprise only policy or if this is actually a policy for home users as well, but. Uh, I think it's just interesting uh, from a purely policy standpoint, and that is apparently Windows has decided that the whole mandatory password change every so often thing is not worth it, which um, I've been saying for a while. And but let's let's let me read a little bit from this article from Naked Security, uh, which is the Sophos blog, uh, and then we'll talk about it. What is it about a secure password that makes us think it's secure? Traditionally, for businesses, it's been things like complexity, minimum length, avoiding known bad passwords, and how often passwords are changed to counter the possibility of undetected compromise. And yet recently, the last of those orthodoxies, password expiration, has started to crumble. In 2016, the influential U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, broke with generations of received wisdom by recommending that scheduled password change should be dropped from the list of good practices on the basis it now does more harm than good. This week, the mighty Microsoft joined them in no uncertain terms in a blog explaining the company's security baselines for the forthcoming Windows 10 version 1903 due in May. Microsoft's Aaron Margosis didn't mince his words. Quote, periodic password expiration is an ancient and obsolete mitigation of very low value, and we don't believe it's worthwhile for our baseline to enforce any specific value. Unquote. At first glance, password expiration sounds sensible because, as numerous security compromises demonstrate, passwords today are often stolen and abused long before their owners realize. Logically, then, changing them on a schedule would minimize the risk by reducing the length of possible compromise to a defined period of weeks or months. The problem is this can have unintended consequences which can render the effort worthless. As Microsoft's Margosis writes, quote, When humans are forced to change their passwords, too often they'll make a small and predictable alteration to their existing passwords and or forget their new passwords, unquote. So that kind of sums it up in a nutshell, and this is um, something I thought was good to bring up. We haven't talked about it for a while, um, but it, you know, somewhere along the line, probably those of us that have worked at any decent-sized company, uh, it was drilled into our heads that it's a smart practice to change your passwords every so often. And I get this question a lot. Um, and, and this article lays it out nicely. The idea there, mostly for companies, is that at a corporate environment, 
it's not unheard of for you to somehow get a password of someone else you know or get access to some part of the system um, that maybe someone gave you temporarily or whatever, so you know the password. And in order to make sure that you know that kind of sharing or that kind of maybe someone got it when they shouldn't have, uh, or maybe an employee left the company, uh, for example, and remembers all these passwords, in order to keep you know to minimize the window for which these people can access these things, you know, when they shouldn't be, is minima is is reduced by forcing those passwords to change every so often. And again, this really this really only helps you. When someone has gotten the password and you're not aware that they have gotten the password, so therefore they can somehow surreptitiously lurk around and access data uh, when you don't want them to. And in this case, they're not going to want to tip their hand. They're not going to probably do anything overt, but they might be, you know, silently reading things they're not supposed to or getting access to documents or that sort of thing. Um, so the idea was that, you know, we should change these passwords ever so often so that, you know, if that's the case, then we'll at least cut these people off regularly um, and they will not be able to get in after a certain point in time. But that's really the corporate world. When you're talking about at home, you know, and people think that they, you know, if it makes sense at work, then it makes sense at home. That is definitely not the case. Uh, there are two very different security scenarios. So anyway, long story short, there's really no need, there's no pressure that you feel like you, you should go through and, you know, change all your passwords every six months or every three months or whatever, you know, makes sense to you. Because like this article says, what a lot of people do, certainly before password managers, what a lot of people would do is they would, you know, they'd pick some password they could remember and then add a one at the end and then a two at the end and then a three at the end. <laughs> they would just increment the number or they would find, you know, some sort of very simple tweak that they could remember. And, uh, and that really doesn't make the password that much better. Even now with the advent of password managers, even though you could theoretically go and change all of your passwords fairly easy to some easily to some, you know, crazy long password, it's just it's not worth it. You know, so unless you know that there's been some sort of a data breach where you know the bad guys are potentially out there trying to furiously reverse engineer all these passwords that they've come across, or you you know you've given the password to someone else and now maybe you're a little worried that you don't trust them or you know you only want them to have access for a certain amount of time. Um, you know, there, there are certain situations where you didn't like that, where you, you know, you, you probably should change your password, but generally speaking, just changing it for the heck of it every few months doesn't make any sense. And Microsoft windows is now on that page. All right. Next up, uh, there was a really kind of disturbing, uh, article I ran across about some vulnerabilities found in internet of things devices. And again, internet of things is really, Honestly, it's anything connected to the internet, which today is a lot of different things. Um, and that's kind of what the IoT thing is all about, is because we're connecting our refrigerators and televisions and you know, all these random dumb devices that never used to have to be connected to the internet are now connected to the internet. Which means that they are vulnerable to hacking 24-7. So um, this particular article talks about uh, webcams and some other uh, IoT type devices, which you may or may not have. But uh, let's get into a little bit of this article from Krebs on Security uh, about this iLink P2P protocol that has been, that was horribly, horribly designed and is extremely vulnerable. So uh, from the article, it says, iLink P2P is designed to allow users of these devices to quickly and easily access them remotely from anywhere in the world without having to tinker with one's firewall. Users simply download a mobile app, scan a barcode, or enter the six-digit ID stamped onto the bottom of the device, and the P2P software handles the rest. But according to an in-depth analysis shared with Krebs on Security by Reese 
uh, security researcher Parmarapis, iLink P2P, that's spelled little i, L-N-K, P2P, iLink P2P devices, offer no authentication or encryption and can be easily enumerated, allowing potential attackers to establish a direct connection to these devices while bypassing any firewall restrictions. Marapiz said the proof-of-concept script he built identified more than 2 million vulnerable devices around the globe. He found that 39% of the vulnerable devices were in China, another 19% are located in Europe, 7% of them are are in use in the United States. There's some, you know, there's some technical stuff in there, but basically what this is, is, you know, setting up some of these devices. Let's say you've got a webcam and you want to be able to check on the dog or check on the nanny or whatever, uh, while you're traveling, um, or even just out for dinner or out for the movies or whatever. And you want to be able to look back in and see how things are going. And so some of these devices require you to poke holes in your firewall. (laughs) And what that means is you've got in your home router, um, whether you know it or not, uh, or sometimes in your computers as well, this firewall function. And it basically blocks incoming requests to your network from things on, on the wide woolly internet. And that's a good thing because there are all sorts of nefarious devices out there sniffing around constantly looking for open ports on your firewall to try to get inside your home network and then compromise devices inside your home network. But if you are out uh, out and about and you whip up your cool little iPhone app that shows you your video camera, that essentially means that you need to have a request coming from your phone to the webcam that's inside your house. So that means you have incoming traffic, and that means you have to be able to be allowed in. Um, and this software that these guys came up with as a kind of a clever workaround allows this process to work without you having to fiddle with your networking stuff, because most people have no clue how to do this. So they're, you know, addressing a convenience need. And as always, convenience and security are usually at odds. So anyway, the the bottom line here is if you have one of these devices, and it, there are other names besides iLink P2P, so um, they give it other marketing names. Um, but the the general thing is you, you your device has a little QR code usually on it, some sort of a those little square barcode looking things. And you scan that with the app. Or there's a little ID that you enter into the app, and all of a sudden that you can communicate with that device. Um, if you've got a device that works that way, and these these device IDs start off with four letters. Um, in many cases, I've seen them be the same letter, like FFFF or AAAAA, but they're not all like that. But those they start with these kind of um, ID codes. Some of them are six characters long, uh, apparently too. So if, but if that's kind of the mechanism that you use to set up some sort of a, a webcam or other kind of device in your house, so you can access that device through the app outside your house, there's a good chance that it's one of these devices and you should probably just unplug it because it sounds to me like there's really, first of all, the manufacturers are not responding to these security researchers saying, Hey, there's a problem here. And second, they probably can't do anything about it anyway. These devices are probably not updatable. Um, so you probably can't fix the bug anyway. So anyway, just a little PSA. Uh, if you happen to have one of these devices, you might want to, <laughs> frankly, stop using it and find something better. All right, next up, a couple of weeks ago when I was doing one of the interview shows, I took the time out. Normally I don't, but I took the time out to mention a news story about these Amazon Echo devices and news stories that were popping up saying that Amazon was secretly listening in to all of your recordings and people, you know, a lot of the headlines made it sound like basically Amazon was bugging, bugging you and Amazon employees were listening to what, everything you were doing. Um, and I said at the time that that's not really the case. 
and it's still not. <laughs> I've got an update on that on that story that I'll share with you. Um, but just to recap, the way these things all work, if they're done properly, um, is it's a you've got a some sort of a hardware device that's sitting in your home. It's got a speaker and a microphone, and the device itself is smart enough to listen for one word, maybe two. Uh, in the case of Amazon, it's the A-L-E-X-A word, which I'm going to try not to say out loud so I don't wake up all your devices. Um, but if you say that word, um, it, it's smart enough to hear that one word. And once it hears that word, then, and only then, does it start recording you. And it records the next thing you say and basically until you pause. So you say the wake word, you ask it a question, and you pause. Uh, that audio snippet is then sent up to the cloud, and some automated cloud computer thing, not a human, quickly listens to that, figures out what it was you asked, searches for the answer, and sends you back the answer, which is then, you know, um, read to you by the device. Now, in order to train these devices, they have to, you know, they, they do have to use human samples to do these things. And of course, they do a lot of these things in their own lab. But, you know, they, they want to get different accents, and they want different speech patterns, and people who talk fast, and people to talk slow. Um, you know, so it really helps them to get you know, real people doing these things. And every once in a while, they will take, um, I'm sure they have engineers that sample some of these recorded snippets and judge how good, a, how good of a job they did. And if they find errors, they use that to tweak their system to make it better in the future. Now, uh, the issue then is how much information do those people know about those little audio snippets? And that's where we get to today's article. So this came in uh, Mac Rumors. It, uh, it was all over the place, but let me read a snippet here from Mac Rumors. Earlier this month, Bloomberg shared details on the thousands of employees that Amazon employs around the world to listen to voice recordings captured in the homes of Amazon Echo owners where the uh, A-L-E-X-A wake word is spoken with the purpose of improving the service. There was some concerning information in the report, including employees' access to private recordings, recordings that are upsetting or potentially criminal, and an employee tendency to share private recordings in group work chat environments. As it turns out, there's something... Echo owners should be even more worried about. Some of these employees have access to the home addresses of Amazon customers. In a new report on the team Amazon employs to listen to Amazon Echo recordings, Bloomberg says that employees have access to location data and can, quote, easily find a customer's home address, unquote, by typing geographic coordinates into third-party mapping software. So let me just stop there for a second. So basically what that's saying is, apparently, while these recordings come in and they don't like have the customer's um, address built into, you know, stored with that data, it does have the geographic locations. In other words, the longitude and the latitude of where that was recorded. And I'm sure part of that is, again, it comes down to probably they want to know what country they're from, what language they might be speaking, maybe even what dialect they're speaking, which would have a lot to do with where they're physically located, probably, right? Um, my guess is that, that that that's what that's for. And they probably thought, well, you know, we could anonymize this data. We're not going to put the home address in there. But if we just put in the, you know, the, the, the geographic GPS coordinates, you know, that will at least let them figure out what region of the world they're from. Well, unfortunately, because they're geographic coordinates, they're GPS coordinates, it really, if you, if you go to Google Maps, you could just enter that longitude and latitude, and that would take you right down to that person's physical location, their house, which, you know, it wouldn't be that hard to get their address from there. And, and that's what I, what I believe this is saying. But it does go on to say something more. So let, let me continue. Certain employees on the data team listening to recordings have access to home and work addresses for customers, along with phone numbers and access to their contacts if the person has chosen to share contacts with 
Echo, all of all for the purposes of purpose of improving requests. That employees can access specific location data for individual customers is concerning because after the original report, Amazon had this to say, quote, employees do not have direct access to information that can identify the person or account as part of this workflow. Unquote. In a new statement provided to Bloomberg, Amazon said something different, calling access to internal tools, quote, highly controlled. In a new statement responding to the story, Amazon said, quote, access to internal tools is highly controlled and is only granted to a limited number of employees who require these tools to train and improve the service by processing an extremely small sample of interactions. Our policies strictly prohibit employee access to or use of customer data for any other reason, and we have zero tolerance policy for abuse of our systems. We regularly audit employee access to internal tools and limit access whenever and wherever possible, unquote. Amazon, says Bloomberg, appears to be restricting the level of access that employees have to sensitive customer data, and after the original story, some of the workers who transcribe and annotate audio recordings no longer had access to software tools they had previously used. Echo users concerned with data that's being collected and used by Amazon should make sure to enable all privacy features and uncheck the option for letting Amazon save Echo recordings. All right, so that's the, that's the, the crux of this whole thing. If after all this you're you're worried about it but would still like to use your device, there are settings. Go into your A-L-E-X-A app. Um, boy, that's annoying. Um, go into that app on your phone the, the, that you've used to set up the device and, and dig around in the settings and find the privacy stuff. And there are settings. I found them myself because um, I use these. I have these at home myself. I've got three of them in my house at least. <laughs> um and find these things and find the privacy settings and turn off the options to share this information. It might be, you know, I forget how it's worded. It might be improve customer experience or something like that. Just turn those off um, if you're at all worried about this. But me personally, I'm not super worried about this. Yes, I know they do this. Uh, I know from working at my company that we do, do these sorts of things too. We need to improve our products. And that means that certain limited people under very certain restricted conditions will have access to some of this personal data. Um, and it, you know, I can bet that it probably is very tightly controlled. Doesn't mean they won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean there won't be somebody that might abuse it. It is kind of the trade-off that we're accepting when we use these kind of devices. But I don't think the hype is quite, you know, lives up to reality in terms of, it's, you know, Amazon is not spying on you. Amazon is not secretly listening into all your conversations. Uh, nevertheless, it's a possibility that it could be abused. So, you know, you'll have to make that choice yourself as to how, you know, as always, you know, the, the risk versus reward trade-off that we all have to make uh, when we use this modern technology. All right, next up, uh, we're going to talk about ping tracking. And, I, and this is going to get a little technical, so I will try to, and I'm going to read a little bit from this article, uh, and I will break out every once in a while to kind of explain some of these terms. Um, but it, uh, I'll simplify it all for you at the end of, uh, at the, end of this little snippet, um, and we'll talk about what it really means. So this is uh, from Bleeping Computer. Newer versions of Chrome, Safari, and Opera will no longer allow you to, to disable hyperlink auditing, which is a concern for those seeking maximum privacy. While some of these browsers previously allowed you to disable this feature, new versions are going in the opposite direction. And I'll stop here to say um, that, they are actually, that Firefox is actually joining this too, and, and which shocked me, um, that they're not even going to allow you to, to, to switch this off. Uh, but I'll explain why that, why that is here in a minute. Okay, back to the article. Hyperlink auditing is an HTML standard that can be used to track clicks on a website link on website links. This is done by creating special links that ping back to a specified URL when they are clicked on. 
These pings are done in the form of a post request to the specified web page that can then examine the request headers to see what page the click came from. Okay, so let me stop right there. There's already a lot of technical terms. So HTML is the language of websites. If you ever go to a website and right-click on it and say view source, which nobody ever does except people like me, um, you can actually see all the gobbledygook that, that, that makes up what that page really looks like. What That is actually what you're downloading. And it's your web browser that translates all that gobbledygook into a pretty web page. Um, anyway, that language is HTML, hypertext, mar hypertext markup language. And then a URL is a universal resource locator, which is basically a web address. Um, so basically what this is saying is when you go to a website and you see those little links um, and you click on the link to go to the next web page, that's, that's, a, that's, a, hyper, that's a hyperlink. Um, and what's behind that hyperlink is an address, a web address. Um, and that's the URL. And so when you click on that, it takes you to the next web page. That's how your browser, that's how your browser works fundamentally. What this technology does, this ping, uh, and that's, that goes back to the old, um, I believe that goes back to the old sonar submarine days when you, when it goes send ping and it sends out that thing and it listens to the echoes that's active sonar. That's called a ping. Uh, so that's kind of worked its way into computer language today as, as a meaning of kind of testing, you know, doing a little, a quick message to see if something's there. So uh, in this case, what it means is when you go to Google and you search on, oh gosh, I don't know, Ford trucks and, and cause you're looking to buy a new car and it gives you a link, of a whole bunch of Ford sites. And so you see Ford.com and you click on Ford.com. The, the link it shows you is www.ford.com inside the HTML for that link is a little URL that says www.ford.com, which tells your browser that when I click that link, I want to go to that other website. However, Google in particular, and many of these other advertising sites as well, when they show you that list, they want to know which of those links you clicked on. Normally, they would have no, no idea, right? If, they, if you click that link without this ping tracking technology, all Google would know is I sent this person a whole bunch of search results, and then that's the last I heard from them. Who knows what link they clicked on? Because whatever they, whatever they clicked on, their web browser locally took them to that other web page. Google had no idea which one of those things you clicked on. But of course, Google wants to improve their search results. So they'd like to know if I give these people, you know, 20 options, which one they picked. I get that. So they want to know which one you clicked on. So they use this technology called ping tracking. Actually, they, they use several technology. If, if ping tracking, when ping tracking was blocked, uh, they would use a redirect. And you may have noticed this if you were perceptive enough, or maybe if you had a slow enough internet connection that it's like on Firefox, because it's built into Chrome. Google owns Chrome, so they, they can do whatever they want on tracking in Chrome. But in other browsers like Firefox, where this ping tracking was disabled by default, they would use a different technology called redirect. And what they would do then is the link you clicked on was actually not really the final link. It was a link that goes first to Google and then redirects from Google to the final destination. And that was how Google got around this when, when Firefox was blocking this ping tracking. It would, be a, it would become a two-step procedure. And if it was fast enough, you might not notice it. But it was, basically, for every link you clicked on, you had to go to, you had to go to an intermediate website first. So it was kind of slower and clunkier. And at the end of the day, that's actually the problem here. Um, it's, it is an optimization. So with this new ping tracking thing, even though it effectively does the same thing, you're going to Ford.com, but as you're going to Ford.com, para, in parallel, in the background, without telling you, it's also sending a message, in this case, back to Google saying, hey, he clicked on the first link, which was www.ford.com. 
And so now Google knows which of those links you clicked on. So again, before it was a two-step thing. If they, if this was, if this technology was disabled, Google would find out what you clicked on by basically forcing you to go through them to your final destination. Uh, with the ping technology, they can actually kind of do it in parallel. They can send you to one place and still in the meantime, have the browser say, Hey, by the way, this person went to this place. So it's, a, it is an optimization. It does make things go faster. You, it, it, instead of being a two-step process to get to that next web page, it's just a one-step process. Um, well, it's a multi-step process, but they happen at the same time. They, one doesn't prevent the other from happening. So apparently all the major browsers have just basically capitulated and said, okay, we can't stop this. It is faster. If they, if, if we don't allow them to do the ping, then they're going to do the redirect, which just slows everything down. So since we can't prevent this, you know, we're throwing our hands up and just saying, okay, fine, you can do it. I still don't get why they don't give you the option. I mean, I don't know why they don't just bury it in there somewhere to give you the option. And, you know, for privacy purposes, just lie, you know, whenever I say I don't want to be tracked or whatever, the browsers just say, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I respect your ping request and then just not do it anyway. I don't know. But the upshot of this is they, you know, there are legitimate reasons why Google would want to know what link you click on. That would definitely improve their service. But I also firmly believe that it, as a user, you should have the option to opt out of that. You should be able to say, no, I, I don't want to give you that information. I think it should be private. And luckily, even though basically all the browsers are basically throwing in the towel here, you still have, uh, you still have the option because if you use uBlock origin, uh, the plugin for that's available for all these browsers, uBlock origin or privacy badger from the EFF, both of these block that tracking. So, um, you still have the option. It's just not from the browser vendors, unfortunately. All right, last up. And of course, it's the story of the week. And this is further Facebook fiascos. Um, there's two and they're related that have happened in the last few weeks that are just unbelievable. And I, I just cannot believe that these guys are getting away with this. And actually, I think they might actually get, end up getting fined for some of these, which would be good, but man, it's going to have to be a really big fine for this to even matter to Facebook. But, all right, let's talk about two of these things. First of all, and this has been done, I've seen this done other places too. I remember LinkedIn did this for a while. I don't know if they still do this. Um, But when you sign up for one of these social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, you know, um, some, you know, when you sign up for these things, some of them will offer, hey, hey, let me, let me find other people that you might want to connect to. Let me help you find your friends that are also using this service. And the easiest way for you to do for us to do that is for you to hand over your address book. Uh, and they might ask for your Yahoo address book or your Gmail, your Google address book. And, and the way they did this is they say, just give us your password, give us your, you know, whatever email account you're signing up with. Give us also, if you just give us your password for that email account as well, we'll go look at your contacts for you. And we'll see if any of those people in your contact list are also friends and we will suggest them to you. How convenient. Well, obviously this is, it's a horrible idea because <laughs> uh, you're not just giving them access to your contacts, you're giving them access to everything. And if you think about it in the case of Google, you're really giving them access to Google Docs, Google Calendar, uh, your, all of your email forever and ever back, um, Google Chat, if you still use that, uh, you know, all these Google services, if you give them your Google password, you're giving them access to everything. So Facebook was 
caught doing this and they were make they were using a what we call a dark pattern. They were making it hard to not do it. They were making it seem like a very good idea and not making it obvious how you not do it. So let me read a little bit of this article. I got two articles here from Hacker News. One for this original screw up and then the follow up. So let's talk about this one first. So from hack um again from Hacker News it says Facebook has been caught practicing the worst ever user verification mechanism that could put the security of its users at risk. Generally, social media or any other online service asks users to confirm a secret code or a unique URL sent to their email address that they provided for account registration. However, Facebook has been found asking newly registered users to provide the social network with the passwords to their email accounts, which according to security experts is a terrible idea that could threaten privacy and security of its users. Yeah, which is what I just said. Okay. However, the prompt only appears for email accounts from certain email providers, which Facebook considers to be suspicious. In a statement provided to the Daily Beast, Facebook confirmed the existence of such dubious verification process, but also claimed it doesn't store the user-provided email passwords on its server. Facebook also said it would end the practice for, of asking for email passwords altogether. Quote, we understand the password verification option isn't the best way to go about this, so we are going to stop offering it. Unquote. Okay, so all well and good, but two weeks later, this article comes out. Let me read this, the next article from the Hacker News. Remember the most recent revelation of Facebook being caught asking users new to the social network platform for their email account passwords to verify their identity? At the time, it was suspected that Facebook might be using access to users' email accounts to, and this is not a word, unauthorizedly secretly gather a copy of their saved contacts. Boy, that's an awkward sentence. Now it turns out that the collection of email contacts was true, Facebook finally admits. In a statement released on Wednesday, Facebook said the social media co company, quote, unintentionally, unquote, uploaded email contacts from up to 1.5 million new users on its servers without their consent or knowledge since May 2016. In other words, nearly 1.5 million users had shared passwords for their email accounts with Facebook as part of its dubious verification process. A Facebook spokesperson shared information with Business Insider that the company was using harvested data to, quote, build Facebook's web of social connections and recommended friends to add, unquote. The social media giant said the company had stopped this email verification process a month ago and has assured its users that it is not that it has, it has not shared those contacts with anyone and that it has already started deleting them. Quote, last month we stopped offering email password verification as an option for people verifying their account when signing up with Facebook for the first time. We estimate that up to 1.5 million users' email contacts have been uploaded. These contacts were not shared with anyone and we're deleting them. We've fixed the underlying issue and are notifying people whose contacts were imported. People can also review and manage their contacts. They share manage the contacts they share with Facebook's in their settings, unquote. All right. So <laughs> for those of you keeping track, here's what happened. So Facebook, since May of 2016, has been asking new users when they sign up. Because when you sign up, you give them an email address, right? Because they're going to want to know how to contact you and they want to verify that you're a real person. And that's gonna they're going to use that probably as your unique identifier. And to verify that that really is your email address, what they most of these companies do is they will send you a special email and, this, and with a link that says, click here to verify this email account. So they verify that you own that account. You got the mail, you clicked on the link. Okay, we verified that you actually do own this account, which is not only is a security thing, but it's also just a, 
a mis- anti-mistake thing. I mean, what if you, you know, fat fingered the address when you entered it and you actually gave them the wrong email address? So it's a verification mechanism. But what they've been doing for a lot of New Year's is apparently since May of 2016 is not only asking for an email address and sending them a link. Instead, to auto-verify, give me the password for your email account so that they can... <laughs> I guess, send you that email and then click the link for you, or who knows what they're actually doing with that. But they asked you for your email account password, which is just horrible. That's basically a phishing attempt coming straight from Facebook. That This is this is what phishing sites do. They try to give get you to give up your account credentials. In this case, they're basically, basically forcing you to do it to sign up for the account because even though there was supposedly a little link underneath that says, having trouble, click help me, that if you'd clicked that, you could have opted out. But it doesn't say click here to opt out and find some other way to do it. You had to figure out that, hey, I don't want to do this. And maybe if I click this help me link, they'll give me a different way to do it. Anyway, so it turns out that they collected one, the contacts of 1.5 million new users. And that's not 1.5 million contacts. That's all the contacts, all the address book entries for 1.5 million users. And they uploaded all those contacts and and used them for, you know, tracking purposes and whatever they're going to use them for. And they've since decided that they did this unintentionally. I don't know how you do this unintentionally. There's no way to not do that intentionally. So they were caught. They said, I'm sorry, which is always what Facebook does in these situations. You know, it's their living embodiment of it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Um, they just do it. And if they get caught, then they apologize. Um, and in some cases like this, apparently try to walk it back. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the damage is done. Okay. So that brings us to our tip of the week. Obviously my first, <laughs> my knee jerk reaction tip of the week is just delete Facebook. Just, just quit Facebook. But if you're still on Facebook, after all the things that have happened, you're probably not going to leave. So, so that brings us to step two. And that is you can delete, apparently, any contacts that you have somehow uploaded through Facebook. And you can go through and review them and delete any ones you, that it should have no, um, that has no reason to know. So uh, to do this, uh, apparently it's fairly simple. Now, I don't have a Facebook account anymore, so I have not verified this myself in person. Uh, but it seems pretty simple. So you go to log into Facebook.com. Uh, you need to go to your contacts management page. Uh, and then just review and delete any contacts that you don't want Facebook to know. Um, I do have, uh, I'll, you can find a blog entry with all the links on my website, firewallsdon'tstartdragons.com. At this point, it's the top article on the page. Um, if you don't get there for another couple of weeks, it might be the second article. Um, but anyway, if you go to my my blog at uh, firewallsdon'tstartdragons.com, you'll see a full article on this. And at the bottom, it'll tell you exactly where to go and uh, has the links to click on to find your contacts and all these sorts of things. It also has a link to my article on how to delete Facebook. Uh, so if you're ready to do that, finally, you can find that information there as well. All right, that'll wrap it up for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, again, thanks to all of you who have taken the time to go to iTunes or wherever on your podcast app to rate the podcast. It's been very helpful. Um, I've got, I think, 13 five-star reviews at this point. Uh, Every last one helps. So um, thank you very much for doing that. Also, thanks to those of you who have gone to Amazon to uh, put a nice little review about the book out there. I appreciate that very much as well. Um, Please help me spread the word. Uh, If you know other people who could really use this sort of information, 
let them know about the blog, the podcast, the newsletter, the book, all these sorts of things, depending on what kind of, you know, how they like to get their information. Uh, help me spread the word. I very much appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter if you want to get some more kind of live update kind of things. I tend to cover more technical stuff there, uh, retweeting some uh, more technical articles. But if you'd like to, you know, get, uh, if you can't wait a week for some of this information, a lot, a lot of the things I talk about in the show, I actually have been retweeting or tweeting about during the week. So um, that's uh, at Firewall Dragons. Um, again, if you go to uh, the, the website, you can find the, the link there as well to my Twitter account and you can follow me there. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week. We've got some other interviews coming up. And, of course, I'll be keeping you up to date on the latest news and all the things you need to do to keep yourself safe and secure. Uh, In the meantime, stay safe out there. Don't get caught with your drawbridge down.